I'll read the entire text of Exodus chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring, it, bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that I may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart, heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And again, Lord, we come to you as people who desire to to seek you and honor you. Lord, may we be a church of people who live by faith, 
Lord, may our love for you be evident to those in our community, those we work with, Lord, that we are your people. Lord, we are fallen people, we are imperfect people, but may we be progressively sanctified and transformed as your people, Lord, for your glory. Lord, we pray that you bless our time in your word this morning and that it would be edifying to us and pointing us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We're continuing in Exodus this morning, once again taking a break from the Gospel of John for a few weeks. Last week we began our study and talked about the opening chapters of Exodus, that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. But with a rapidly growing Israelite population, the Egyptians had made attempts to kill off the Israelite males. Pharaoh had attempted this through genocide, through killing of the males. Pharaoh had ordered males to be thrown into the river and drowned. Barbaric. Last week we saw the birth of Moses and the eventual calling to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And I give all of that background just as a reminder of where we've been. Today we come to some of the best known events of the whole Bible. The plagues of Exodus where Pharaoh is repeatedly told to release the Israelites... And when he refuses, God brings divine judgment. He brings plagues. The Nile River turned to blood. A plague of frogs. A plague of gnats. A plague of flies. The death of livestock. A plague of boils. A plague of hail. A plague of locusts. Darkness. And finally, death. It's interesting to consider the plagues of Exodus. Because I look back at the last year and a half, and I can't be the only one who at times looked at everything going on in our nation and in the world, and felt like we were actually living through the biblical plagues. Starting last year in March, we had COVID, disease, turned the whole world upside down. And then, we ran out of toilet paper. None of us probably ever thought that would be an issue we'd have to deal with. But deal with it, we did. If you remember this one, in May of last year, there were stories of murder hornets in the Pacific Northwest. Murder hornets. Throughout the summer last year, there was civil unrest, rioting, shortages, everything from coins to cleaning supplies to bicycles, shipping delays, total disruptions of our supply chains, wildfires. I read that last year was the worst year for wildfires in America in recorded history. Five of the six worst wildfires that California has had since 1932 were last year. Disease, murder hornets, civil unrest, wildfires, no toilet paper. (laughs) Last summer, I don't know if you know about this, there was a plague of locusts in Africa. Did you know that? Billions of locusts. Tremendous destruction was caused. And that's something about these biblical plagues that's important to understand. When the Bible talks about things like a plague of locusts or an infestation of frogs, those are real things. Those are things that cause havoc in different parts of the world. We had more shortages than we had labor shortages. We still have labor shortages. Economic fallout, inflation, 
more product shortages, building materials, semiconductor chips, beef, on and on and on. We're surviving, but it's amazing how these things can so drastically impact life for so many. And so with that, we return to Exodus this morning, and we're going to look at three scenes. Pharaoh's opposition to God, God's warning to Pharaoh, God's judgment on Egypt. And the main idea of this passage is simple, that opposition to God will never work. First scene, Pharaoh's opposition to God. We'll be primarily in chapter 7, but before we get there, in Exodus chapter 4, after God had called upon Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, the Lord shows Moses two miracles. He turns Moses' shepherd's staff into a serpent, and then he gives Moses leprosy and heals him. The Lord tells Moses to show these signs to Pharaoh, but in Exodus 4.21, the Lord says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And I point this out because this is an idea that is common throughout the Exodus plagues, and it's found for the first time here in Exodus 4.21, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Between Exodus 4 and Exodus 14, the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hardened is mentioned 19 times. Most of those instances are God as the active agent who is hardening the heart of Pharaoh, such as what we see in this current verse that's on the screen. But what does that mean to harden one's heart? Does that mean that God is causing Pharaoh to resist him? Does it mean that God is causing Pharaoh to sin? No, God never causes us to sin. Something that's important to understand from the outset is throughout these passages, there is a clash of worldviews and a clash of religions in Exodus. The Egyptians believed in many gods. They believed in a pantheon of gods. Gods of the river, the weather, livestock, the sun, the sky. And in the plagues, you have the Lord God showing that their false gods are all powerless against him. They're powerless because they don't exist. In these passages, you'll have a clash between Pharaoh, who to the Egyptians was thought of being this quasi-divine person, versus the Lord. Spoiler alert, the Lord wins. And you have a conflict of the religious views of the Israelites and the Egyptians. In Egyptian religion, they believed that when a person died, that the heart was weighed. Sin added weight to the heart. There are hieroglyphics which depict a scale with a heart on one side weighed against a feather. And a, per a person's admittance into what the Egyptians thought of as heaven, depended on their own goodness. Really, that's what most religions believe. Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart, I think, is very helpful on this point. Since the Pharaoh was revered in Egypt, they viewed him as being somebody who was morally pure. And that's certainly something that's very different from our leaders today. 
I mean, look at throughout American history, nobody looks at, for the most part, most of our presidents as just these exemplars of morality and character. And what's even worse are Illinois' governors throughout history. Um, but the Egyptians had a different view than we do. And the Pharaoh, who was a king, and he was a religious figure. And so they saw him differently. And so the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a judgment. Again, the Egyptians thought that the gods weighed the heart, judged the heart. And the fact that the Lord can harden the heart of Pharaoh shows his power over Pharaoh. And this all showed, here quoting Douglas Stewart, that Yahweh had done what the Egyptians thought the gods would usually do. Weigh the heart and decide whether its owner was worthy of eternal life or not. End quote. The weighing of Pharaoh's heart is a matter of showing the sin and rebellion of Pharaoh. Ultimately, the choice to refuse God is one that Pharaoh continually will make in these passages. And so ultimately, as a result of his sin, his heart is hardened. Weight is added to his heart as he continues in his sin. And again, we're building up to the first plague. At the beginning of chapter 5, Moses asks Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to go into the wilderness, wilderness for a religious pilgrimage. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. We see Pharaoh's hubris before the Lord. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we'll see him trying to go toe-to-toe with the Lord. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh asks. Last week I pointed this out, but the book of Exodus never tells us which Pharaoh this is. So he asks, who is the Lord? But the Bible leaves us questioning, who is Pharaoh? He doesn't listen. He continues to make life miserable for the Israelites. In chapter 6, Moses is again told to confront Pharaoh. Chapter 6, verse 10 into 12. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? Again, as we saw last week, Moses continues to explain why he's really not the person who God wants to do this task. He's not even respected among the Israelites. And as we begin chapter 7, The Lord gives Moses and his brother Aaron their marching orders. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. The Lord says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In summary, the Lord says that he will give the words to speak, 
Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. The Lord will show greater signs and wonders. Pharaoh will not listen. God will bring judgment. God will bring his people out of Egypt. With that, we come to our second scene. God's warning to Pharaoh. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And as a reminder, this was a miracle that the Lord had shown Moses in chapter 4. To take his staff. Now, a shepherd's staff was a very common possession in ancient times. They were used to aid in walking. They could be used for protection. They could be used to help tend to livestock, depending on what you did. So it was a very ordinary object that a person would have. But the Lord will work through this ordinary object for an extraordinary purpose. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast on his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So Moses does the sign to display the power of God whom he serves. But then verse 11 tells us, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Pharaoh's people do the same thing. The verses call them wise men and sorcerers. They seem to be people who have a, a priestly function. And so when the passage says magicians, they're not talking about Penn and Teller who are doing this. The passage does not tell us how, how they replicate turning their staffs into serpents. Perhaps it's simple trickery. Perhaps it's demonic. The text doesn't tell us. But if there's any confusion about the Pharaoh's wise men one-upping this miracle, verse 12 says, For each man cast out his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So when they threw their staffs to the ground and those staffs became serpents, Aaron's serpent ate theirs. But Pharaoh is unmoved, verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. A sinful heart can always find reasons to ignore the Lord. He'd been warned with the word of the Lord. He had been shown a divine sign, and still he said no. Pharaoh had seen evidence for God working, but refused to listen because he chose instead to trust in his people. When we don't want to trust in the Lord, we can always find a reason. I think of all the evidence we have for God, evidence for the resurrection, reasons to believe in God, and still many say no. Why? Not because there's a lack of evidence, but people don't believe in God because they don't want to believe in God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, it says... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For 
what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is evidence for God. God reveals himself to the world. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. For Pharaoh, he looks at what his wise men have just done. And in our passage, he uses that as the justification to ignore the Lord. Today, I fear that's what science has become. I'm obviously not anti-science. And there are many scientists who are strong believers. But there are also people in our society who look to science... And since they feel that they can't observe or measure God scientifically, then they shouldn't believe in him because there's not reason to believe in him. And what that's doing is quite literally putting faith in science and ultimately putting your hope in science. Now, as a reminder, you guys might not remember this, but my bachelor's degree is in philosophy, the greatest of academic studies. And as somebody who studied philosophy, I've always found that mentality to be self-refuting and self-destructive. Because the idea that all truth is scientific is not a scientific idea, it's a philosophical idea. And the methodology by which things are judged as being scientifically valid is also philosophical. Because science cannot create its own scientific method. And so for science to stand, it needs something outside of itself to give it its structure. I get that there are people who are more scientifically minded and oriented, and I appreciate that. And again, I'm not anti-science. Scientific discoveries have revolutionized the modern world. But we should not place our faith in it. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Pharaoh was called upon to release the Israelites. He refused. God will not compromise. So you have Pharaoh, the anti-God, who tries to stand down the Lord God. In Jesus, we see the one who truly is fully man and fully God. We see the one who truly does have a pure heart. We see the one who truly is righteous. And he invites us to believe in him. He invites sinful people to be forgiven in him. And for that, he will not compromise. And with that, we come to our third scene. God's judgment on Pharaoh. The first plague, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is out of the water, out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Moses is called to give Pharaoh a forewarning of this judgment. 
Now, that warning will not happen for each of the ten plagues, but it does happen, among others, for the first one. Where verse 15 tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning when he's at the water. Either Pharaoh had a habit of swimming in the river or bathing. Either way, that's the place where Moses is told to meet him. And Pharaoh will be a first-hand witness to this judgment. Moses is to take the staff that had been turned into a serpent and to use that to touch the water. Now, it's not that the staff is powerful in itself. It was the Lord who was powerful and who will work this miracle. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in your hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. This is what the first plague will be. The Nile turned into blood. A few things to note about the Nile River. It's the longest river in the world. Unlike rivers in this part of America, which flow from north to south, the Nile flows from south to north. In this period of history, the river would flood annually, usually in September and October, as waters from further down the river in Africa. Did my mic cut out? Well, back to the beginning of the sermon now. Um, <laughs> um, so the first plague is of the flooding of the Nile River. I don't know if you heard if, when my mic cut out, but just briefly a couple things to note about the river. Uh, it's the longest river in the world. In this part of the United States, our rivers flow from north to south. The Nile flows from south to north. Uh, the Nile River floods annually, at least it did in this point in history, as um, during the monsoon season, waters in Africa would uh, flow through the Nile and inundate the river, which further down the river in Egypt would cause flooding. Um, now, when we think of flooding, we typically think that, that that's a bad thing, but they needed the Nile to flood annually because it's the desert. They don't get much rain. Uh, they don't have any options. It's not like they have great pipes in ancient Egypt bringing them water from other places. It's not that they can go to the store and buy bottles of water. That they, the, they needed the river. And so the flooding of the river was what allowed them uh, for the crops that they would grow. Uh, it supported their agriculture. So again, it was essential to Egyptian life. Uh, and it's fitting that the first plague be something that hits the river. Because the river was the lifeblood, no pun intended, of their society. Again, necessary for their drinking water, necessary for their agriculture. It's also fitting to the story that the Nile is the site of the first plague. Earlier in Exodus... We see Pharaoh attempt to punish the Egyptians by ordering that their male babies be placed in the river as a horrific act of genocide. But here, it will be that same river that God will use to bring judgment on Egypt. Something else to consider, and I alluded to this earlier, but 
there were Egyptian gods associated with the Nile. Hapi was the Egyptian god of the flood. The, again, the annual floods would happen, which would bring the essential water that they needed for their soils. Another mythological Egyptian god associated with the river was Osiris, the Egyptian god of the afterlife. But they also associated him with the river in the annual floods. And so the river became associated with life and death. And so the flooding of the river was associated with a resurrection of Osiris. Something that I find interesting is that some scholars believe that the first plague occurred during this flooding period. We don't know that for a fact, but if that was when the water was turned into blood, at a time associated with the resurrection of Osiris, it would be very striking and unsettling for the Egyptians to see the Nile running red at a time associated with the deity who they believed had the power of life and death. Pharaoh continues to be warned about what will happen to the river in verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. Dead fish, rotting fish, undrinkable water. Now, there are legitimate questions about what exactly happens to the water. There are many places in Exodus where they don't give us all the details that we might be interested in knowing. But the main point is that it is something associated with the Lord that he miraculously causes to happen. With all of the plagues, that's the most important thing, that the Lord is almighty and he is the cause. Something else that's important to note, while the Nile is really an important symbol of Egyptian life and livelihood, this first plague is ultimately going to be a nuisance for the Egyptians. But future plagues will be even more severe than this one. Continuing with the narrative. Verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. So the verse says the rivers, canals, ponds, pools of water. The point seems to be making that it's not just the water of the main flow of the river, that it will have far-reaching ecological impact. The river and where it flows. There should be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Again, getting at the far-reaching impact of this plague. Verse 20, after all the warnings and what has been foretold, we finally see the first plague set in motion. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Again, the river had been turned into blood. 
Now, there's a question about, is it literal blood? And if so, what type of blood? Human blood? Animal blood? Could it be some sort of microorganism that turns the water red? There are algae blooms which can turn water red. Could it be red from some sort of rock sediment? Again, we don't get all the details. But the main point is that it's this miraculous judgment from God that's destructive and a judgment. Does it teach Pharaoh a lesson? In verse 22, we see another twist in the story. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. As we've seen with the serpent, the Pharaoh's wise men are also able to turn water to, to blood somehow by their secret arts. Again, we don't know exactly how. It's interesting that they could do the same thing, yet what they could not do was fix the problem. And while they've been able to turn some water into blood, it was certainly not as far-reaching as what the Lord had done. Pharaoh had witnessed this miracle. He'd seen the destruction that had come from it, but he still would not relent. Verse 24 gets at the impact of the people. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So they have to go digging for groundwater. That was apparently safe for their consumption. So again, it's dramatic. It's significant. It's ultimately a major inconvenience for the people. It should have caught Pharaoh's attention. It should have caused Pharaoh to change and listen to God. But it didn't. A lot more pain and misery will await in the coming events of the Exodus. And there's a lot of misery in life when we avoid the Lord. Now, he might not bring plagues on us, but he is truth. He is our creator. He is our Lord. And the only way to live a life of true fulfillment, of true joy, of true peace, is in him. Does that mean that all those things will come easily when we say a prayer or get baptized? No. Because there's still sin in our lives and in the world. Does that mean that life will suddenly become easy? No. There are still challenges and difficulties. But we're not alone. You'll have God. Does it mean that we'll get everything we want? No. But God gives us what we need. And he gives us himself. Jesus literally gave himself on the cross. He literally gave up his life so that we could have life. God calls us to trust. He calls us to believe. And still, so many turn our backs on him. Find reasons why people can't believe in him. And it doesn't work. Because it's not living in accordance with what we were made for. And who we were made for. To quote C.S. Lewis. God made us. Invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. 
He himself is the fuel of our spirits we're designed to burn on, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. End quote. True fulfillment cannot come apart from God because to find fulfillment in anything else would be to find fulfillment in something less than God. When we aim for less than God, there is a disconnect because there is something bigger, something greater that we need. God. Something that God has made cannot be the source of where we find our fulfillment, where we find our joy, where we find our peace. True life cannot come apart from the true source of life. And so we're called upon to trust in the Lord and to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who invites us to come to him. Who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. So often, we ignore the Lord. We ignore his call. But he invites us to him. He invites us to be forgiven. And he invites us to know him. May we be a church of people who believe and trust in him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your goodness. Lord, again, there is so much... There's so much in our world, so many voices that can drown you out. And some parts of the world, they're trying to silence you, Lord. I fear in this part of the world, they just try to bring in so many competing voices that you can be easy to lose sight of or get distracted from And so, Lord, we pray that we would turn to you and your word, and through that be pointed to you and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.